The Bible tells us, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration. Because it says, not by works of righteousness which we have done. Baptism would be a work of righteousness. And therefore, we don't believe in baptismal regeneration. Once you start down that path, we have seen the errors that it brings. John would write and tell us, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of God, parents, nor of the will of man, but of God. That verse is so beautiful. It cuts out Jewish dependence upon race. It cuts out decisional regeneration of your flesh, making a decision for Jesus. And it cuts out anyone acting in your behalf, the will of man. All of it cut out because we're born again of God. John 1.13 And once we start down that path, then we blow out so many of these baptismal heresies because we reject that baptism has any saving effect. We like the simple example that the thief went to heaven without ever being baptized and saw Jesus Christ again that day. We're Baptists because faith, repentance, and good works are prerequisites to being baptized. John the Baptist required repentance because his baptism was the baptism of repentance. Thousands flocked to see John. How many infants? None. How many that couldn't repent or didn't repent or wouldn't repent? None. Even when he saw the Pharisees come to his baptism, he said, Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. Show me some repentance before he would baptize any. The Apostle Peter in the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized. There were 3,000 baptized, but I can tell you that all 3,000 had active consciences and had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were pricked in their heart. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were not infants. And neither did he tell those 3,000 to go home and bring back all their babies. There's no evidence of anything like that in the Bible. The, The eunuch asked Philip, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip gave the perfect answer. Baptists have given for 2,000 years. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And that's what we look for. Does someone believe with all their heart? They may be baptized. And so Philip baptized the eunuch. We're Baptists because immersion is the figure of burial and resurrection. Look at Colossians chapter 2 to see a related text to Romans chapter 6. Colossians chapter 2. Remember, I started this service off with chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, If ye then be risen with Christ. And verse 20 says, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ. And we keep backing up, and we come to verse 10. And ye are complete in Him. Those were wonderful words written by the Apostle Paul to a Gentile congregation. And ye are complete in Him. Jesus Christ satisfies everything we need for our eternal salvation, which is the head of all principality and power. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him, through the faith of the operation of God, 
who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And then he goes on to describe how that Jesus Christ blotted out the handwriting of ordinances of the Old Testament that was against us, nailing them to the cross and destroy and openly defeating the devil and his works. Let's look at verse 12 for a minute, then we'll look at 11, then we'll look at 13. Verse 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein, that means also in the same thing, in the baptism that I'm talking about, ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. We believe and trust and have faith in the operation of God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We are buried with him in baptism. We are raised in the same ordinance out of the water just like he was raised out of the ground. We're buried with him in baptism wherein, that is, in the same baptism the first clause was talking about, also ye are risen with him. So there's two things we do in baptism. We get buried with Christ and we get raised with Christ like he was buried and raised for us. Verse 11. In whom also ye are circumcised. Oh, this must be the connection to circumcision. This is where Abraham circumcised Ishmael, and this is where Isaac circumcised Esau, providing... Are you listening? This is where Abraham circumcised Ishmael, And where Isaac circumcised Esau, and it has something to do with salvation? Abraham isn't in this text, and neither is Isaac. This is the circumcision of Jesus Christ, not of Abraham or Isaac. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. And no little boy has ever been circumcised without someone's hands involved. I hope some good hands are involved. In putting off the body... uh, of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. When I preached through this passage to you, and it's been a number of years now, it's been a number of years, I understand, verse 11, the circumcision there, when it says the circumcision of Christ, is Christ doing the circumcising, or is Christ circumcised himself? Was Jesus cut off out of the land of the living with our transgressions laid upon him, so that verse 11 is legal? I understand verse 11 to be legal because verse 13 is going to be vital in being Jesus Christ circumcising what's inside us. This is Christ being cut off with our sins upon him, not made with hands. It was a legal transaction between God and Christ. He was cut off. And who shall declare his generation? He was cut off for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's legal salvation in 11. Don't ever let a Presbyterian or anyone take you to Colossians 2.11 and try to pretend that that's tying that to Abraham and Moses. That isn't Abraham and Moses. Right. Whose hands had to circumcise Moses' son? His wife's. And Abraham, they had to use hands. This is a, this is a spiritual circumcision. This is, a, this is a transaction in the Godhead of Jesus Christ being cut off for our sins. Just because the word is there, we better look at its context to find out that it's not talking about the minor surgery that takes place on little boys sometimes. This is Jesus Christ being cut off, putting off the body of the sins, the flesh. Hope. Remember what it says about baptism in 1 Peter 3.21? Not the putting away of the filth of the 
flesh. How's the filth of the flesh put away? Right here. By the circumcision of Jesus Christ being cut off for us. In putting off. Is that, are those the same words? Is that the same verbiage from 1 Peter 3.21? In putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That is how our sins are paid for. Jesus Christ died for them. We've already looked at verse 12 where it tells us that by faith in what Jesus did for us, we are baptized by being buried with Christ and by being raised with Christ. If anyone wants to go into 11 and try to bring an Abraham and Moses circumcision, which we've already proved it can't, then you go into 12. You first of all prove them wrong that Abraham and Isaac and Moses aren't in verse 11. Second of all, you show them whoever's being baptized in verse 12 has faith. Through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Then verse 13, and you, he's just listing all the benefits that we have in Christ because he started this long sentence. He started this little subsection of Colossians chapter 2 with these words, and ye are complete in him. And so he says in verse 13, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. This is a, cor- this is a corresponding text to Ephesians chapter 2, where it says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We are following the prince of the power of the air. But the Lord Jesus Christ circumcised the uncircumcision of our flesh. And it doesn't mean our body when it uses the word flesh. It's talking about our fleshly nature. Was changed and altered and cut off by the Lord Jesus Christ, so we had a new man. So the Romans 2, 28 and 29 can be said about us. That he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and whose circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of god this is a spiritual transaction in verse 13 but if you see verses 11 12 and 13 and see the faith and the burial and baptism and the resurrection and baptism paul just keeps on going and in verse 20 he says wherefore if ye be dead with christ from the rudiments of the world because we were buried in jesus christ he, he took the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. He took the Old Testament and nailed it to his cross. Wherefore, if, you, if you're dead to those rudiments, why are you still following Old Testament rules of do this and don't do that? Because what Paul is trying to save the Colossians from here is the Judaizers who are trying to press on them the things mentioned in verses 16 and 17. Meat, drink, holy days, new moons, Sabbath days... Those are all a shadow, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward. That's verse 18. Verse 8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men. Verse 4, and this I say lest any man should beguile you. There is a lot of effort made to beguile men about the truth that's in Christ Jesus. And salvation is entirely in Him. There are no traditions of men that bring it to us. And when you listen to a Presbyterian reason about baptism, they do a lot of philosophizing, but they don't do a lot of page turning. The only pages they turn are to go back to the Old Testament, because the New Testament is clearly Baptist. But the circumcision in verse 11 is a spiritual circumcision of Christ being cut off. The circumcision in verse 13 is a spiritual circumcision of the uncircumcision of our flesh being cut off. 
when we are quickened out of our death in trespasses and sins. 12 tells us that baptism involves faith and it's a burial and it's a resurrection. That's why we're Baptists. When we read the whole New Testament, we can't find a single infant baptism. When we read the whole New Testament, we can't find a single sprinkling or pouring. Based on all that, it's very easy for us to be Baptists. Because any honest reading of the New Testament is going to show that all the things that are taught about baptism require immersion, require faith, the answer of a good conscience, and it does not save. All the circumstances, all the instructions... All the examples, all the symbolism, and all the circumstances around baptism are all Baptist. The instruction, go and teach all nations, baptizing. There's an order there. Teach and then baptize. All the examples, Philip and the eunuch. All the symbolism, Romans 6, 1 Corinthians 3, Colossians 2, 1 Corinthians 15, the baptism for the dead. All the symbolism is Baptist. The circumstances. They baptized there because there was much water. They both went down into the water. And Jesus came up straightway out of the water. All the instructions, all the examples, all the symbolism, and all the circumstances. What else would you want to know about a subject? Is all Baptist. Every single one of them, without exception, that's why we're Baptists. We're Baptists because we can trace the history of our church to John. What was his last name? Baptist. Is he called John Baptist once in the Bible? Yes, Luke 7:20. John Baptist. Instead of John Kelvin or John Weinbrenner or any other John, we want John the Baptist. Let's go back to Matthew 3 and just spend a second there to remind us of what we saw last Sunday in our second assembly. Matthew chapter 3. Once we establish things about baptism from statements of Scripture that are plainly teaching axioms about baptism, then when we go read these passages that are about the circumstances of baptism or individual cases of them, they all make sense. And that's the way we should reason about this subject. Matthew chapter 3. And verse 6 tells us that there went out to him a great, all the region of Jerusalem and Judea and around about Jordan, verse 6, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. One little verse tells us that John baptized in Jordan. He didn't baptize near Jordan. He didn't baptize at Jordan. He didn't baptize with Jordan. That would have been true if he'd have picked up a cup of it and poured it over their heads. He baptized in Jordan, and they were confessing their sins. That is so simple to, for us. But do you realize that of 100 so-called Christians, 96 of them would say, we don't understand it. That that's taking baptism away from little children. And that's what our Welsh ancestors said in 497 A.D., I believe it was 490, it's either 497 or 597, and for the moment, was it 497 or 597? 597? 597, when Augustine, the Roman Catholic missionary, arrived in Wales, he had three orders from them. You will observe Easter the way we observe it. You will give authority to the Pope of Rome, and you will give Christianity to your children, because they would not baptize children, and they refused to submit to his order 
And so many of them died after that. That's the history of England. And the thousands of, there were thousands of Baptist preachers, let alone saints, in the British Isles. And they just did this. Were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. This is the way Baptists have always baptized. Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3, you hear me refer to these words. I want you to know they're in your Bible. It's such a simple verse. Why did John, why was John only able to baptize in certain places? Why is it in the Bible? Why does it put it this way? John 3.23, And John also was baptizing in Anan near to Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. It tells us why John baptized there. Because there was much water. It tells us the reason for the mention of the water is because John was baptizing because Baptists need lots of water. Baptists need to get you immersed. And remember I showed you last Lord's Day from John 1.28, it says John was baptizing in Bethabara. And we don't know a thing about Bethabara except what Bethabara means. And it means the house of passage or the house of the ford. And remember I told you that didn't mean a car. A ford is a place in a river where you can wade across. You won't have to swim. It's not over your head. That's a ford. That's what Bethabara means. That's John 1.28. Right here, John 3.23, he was baptizing in Anan because there was much water there. The Presbyterians can say they needed drinking water. The Presbyterians can say they brought their livestock that needed water. They can say whatever they want. But it says the reason there was much water there and he needed it was for his baptism. Because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. And it's so simple for us. But brethren, the gospel is simple if we'll tremble before God's word and trust what it says to us. And if we'll start and reason through it properly. Thank you, Lord, for showing it to us. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. I just want you to, to, to enjoy this statement that the Lord Jesus Christ made. Matthew 3.13, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. Why didn't John bring some of Jordan to Jesus? Instead, Jesus went to... How far did he go? It tells us in another place he went from Nazareth of Galilee to Jordan at 60 miles. He went to John at Jordan to be baptized in Jordan because Mark 1.5 and Mark 1.9 tell us that John baptized Jesus in Jordan. And he straightway came up out of the water. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. For baptism to fulfill all righteousness, it's done in a large body of water like a river. And it's done when a man is 30 years of age. And that was the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ by John the Baptist, which made Jesus a Baptist. Because when you're baptized by a Baptist preacher, you're a Baptist. It didn't result in John the Presbyterian, John the Lutheran, or anything like that. It resulted in, I mean, in Jesus, the Lutheran or the Presbyterian resulted in Jesus being a Baptist because he was baptized by a Baptist. Amen. And he was baptized in the river, and this was fulfilling 
all righteousness. I wonder why Mary had never had water sprinkled on him in the first 30 years of his life. Didn't she love him? You say, well, they hadn't invented sprinkling yet. I agree. You might mean in the New Testament, I mean for all time. Look at Luke chapter 7 about the baptism of John. Jesus said there it fulfilled all righteousness. Let me show you something else that the Bible tells us about his baptism. His baptism required faith and repentance. His baptism was done by immersion in the Jordan River. Luke chapter 7 and verse 29. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. Luke 7.30. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. John the Baptist's baptism, requiring repentance and faith in the water by immersion, is the way that they submitted to God and justified God. How do you justify God? You justify God when God says what you've done is wrong and you agree with them. Then you're showing God to be right. And when God tells you to do something and you do it His way, you're justifying God by doing it His way, acknowledging that that's the right way. That's how you justify God. David, David wrote in Psalm 51 when he confessed his sins that he justified, the, he justified God's commandments against his crimes by admitting that he was wrong in them. And Paul quoted from Psalm 51 in Romans chapter 3 when he said the same thing. We justify God when we show God to be righteous by submitting to what he tells us to do and by repenting of what he's told us not to do. These people justified God. They declared God to be right by submitting to John's baptism. But here come the seminary trained religious leaders of their day. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. They would not admit that God's counsel was right, that they needed to repent, that they better get in the waters of the Jordan and show their repentance before God. Look at the difference. The common people, the simple people, and Baptists have, by the vast majority of them, been the common and simple people of the world that have filled Baptist churches. Just like the Bible tells us, God hath chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith. And ye can see your calling, brethren, how that not many mighty, not many noble have been called. But these noble, worldly wise, trained, fine men came out to the waters of the Jordan River and they rejected God's counsel against them because they would not submit to that wild man, John the Baptist, who was going to dunk them under that water after they repented. They wouldn't do that. And this is the difference that there's always been. The fine churches hate baptism because it is such a foolish ordinance and such a common and simple ordinance to go into a river and to be dunked. Episcopalians don't like doing that. It doesn't match with their fine religion. Presbyterians, who can be called lawyers with the way they play with words, don't want to be baptized by a Baptist. This distinction has always followed us for 2,000 years. The trained that have authority from themselves do not want to submit to a man with authority from God. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And it was John the Baptist. Where do we get our authority to baptize? From this book only. 
written by Jesus Christ and His apostles to us. We justify God by our baptism. And so is everyone that goes into the waters of baptism with a good conscience to give answer to God. You are right, and thank you for sending Jesus Christ to pay for my sins, because I'm a sinner that needed a Savior. That's justifying God, and that's giving God the answer of a good conscience all at once. I hope you see the connection, Luke 7:29, with 1 Peter 3:21. Look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. What's the order of John 4, 1? Baptism and then get disciples, or make disciples and then baptize them? Love the Word of God, brethren. Love it. Love every sentence of it. When therefore the Lord knew how the disciples had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. What is the Bible order? You make a disciple, then you baptize him, then you teach him all things whatsoever I have commanded you. You with me? There it is. Over and over, we can see it wherever we turn in the Word of God. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Do we need 120 reasons why we don't celebrate Christmas? We could get by with a couple, couldn't we? I don't know why we need 400 reasons why we're Baptists. Because we could probably get away with just a few of them. But it's been a blessing to me, and I hope it's been a little bit of blessing to you to see how thorough the Bible is about this subject that, and we shouldn't give in it, although there's 96 against 4, remember? 96 so-called Christians don't believe in baptism the Bible way, and only 4 out of 100 are Baptists. Let's stand for it. Acts chapter 10. Did baptism save Cornelius? Or was Cornelius saved before he ever met Peter the Baptist? Was Peter a Baptist? Of course. He was baptized by John the Baptist or the disciples of John the Baptist that John the Baptist had baptized. Was Peter a Baptist? Of course. He wrote 1 Peter 3.21. That's as Baptist as you can get in a text. But was Cornelius saved before he met Peter the Baptist? Indeed he was. He was saved already in the first four verses because it tells us that he was a devout man, one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people. And prayed to God always, and God accepted those prayers and those acts of righteousness, showing that he was a righteous man. And there is no fear of God before the unregenerate, so Cornelius had to have been born again before he ever met Peter. So we know the baptism didn't save him. But the verse I just read over, did it say something about his house? Did it say half of his house was infants, or there were two or three infants in his house? Or did his whole house fear God along with him? His whole house feared God. They will go into verses that use the word house and tell you out of the four or five times in the Bible where there was a baptism of a household, it's got to include a baby or two here or there. Why? Good question. Why does it have to include a baby? It can't include a baby or the Bible isn't true. If a whole house is baptized... Wherever you find a whole house being baptized, either the context will tell you, like with the jailer. Remember, the whole jailer's family and household heard the preaching, 
believed the preaching and rejoiced in the preaching. It told us that. Verses 32 and 34 of Acts 16. But now we're here in Acts 10 and we're told about this house. They all feared God. There were no infants in that house. Look at Acts 18. Acts 18, verse 8. Acts 18, 8. And Crispus, Paul's in Corinth. Corinth of Achaia. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Do you know why we're Baptists? Because of Acts 18.8. It tells us there's a gospel order to things. Hearing believed. I mean, hearing believed and were baptized. Do you see the chain there? They heard the preaching of the gospel of Matthew 28.19. They believed that. Then they were baptized. And then Paul stayed there a while and came back and visited them and wrote them epistles in order to teach them all things whatsoever Christ had commanded them. That is the gospel order. Crispus and his house, they all believe in the Lord. And the order is hearing, believing, and being baptized. There's not a single case of infants being baptized in either testament. Not a single one. There's not a single case of sprinkling or pouring anywhere. How about, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll read more about that same time when Paul arrived in Corinth and met Crispus, and he and his whole house believed, and there was some baptizing done of those that heard and believed. Let's read about it from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. That's the Crispus of Acts 18. Lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. Verse 16, And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. Paul's trying to think back, and I'm thankful he wrote it this way, because sometimes... Anyway, you don't want to hear it. There was someone here last Sunday that I asked them if they had ever been baptized. They looked at me for a minute. Then I knew, oh, I should be ashamed because of the look in their eyes. I had baptized them. But I'm thankful that Paul puts a verse like this in the Bible. And the person was very, very gracious. The person said, baptism to each of us only happens once or twice. But baptism on your side happens a whole lot of times, so that's understandable. That is graciousness. It's true. And I, and I, I thank the Lord that Paul would say, Less, um, and I baptized also the house of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. When he first arrived there, he got Crispus, he got Gaius, and he got the household of Stephanus. Ah! We got babies. We got ba- How could Listen, how can we have all these households without any babies? Let's read about the household of Stephanus. Chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Let's go to the end of the book to find out more about this household of Stephanus. Some of the first converts in Corinth and baptized by Paul. Verse 15 of chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16, 15. I beseech you, brethren, ye know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. 
So here he's telling you, this is the same Stephanus from Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians 1, because they are the first fruits of Achaia. When I first got into Achaia and went to the city of Corinth, they were the first fruits, some of the first ones I baptized. And what does it tell us about the household of Stephanus? They were addicted to the ministry of the saints. When was the last time you saw an infant addicted to the ministry of the saints? This whole household was given to hospitality and the service of the saints of Jesus Christ. This is what we get by reading the whole New Testament. Instead of going to the Old Testament to read about Abraham and his circumcision and Moses and his and try to figure out baptism from that. When you hear anyone going to the Old Testament ask them, why do you want to go look at the shadow to see the details of the reality? Let us go to the New Testament and look at the reality. Why do we want to go back to types and shadows of the Old Testament? Do you want a shadow of a person you love or do you want the picture? Or do you want the real thing? Good. Why go to types and shadows? The Bible tells us that they were just shadowy pictures of what was coming in the new. Don't let somebody take you to the old. Ask them, why do you want to go into shadows with me? Why do you want to take me into shadows to try to prove your point? Why can't you prove it in the reality of the New Testament? You're not going to start using smoke and mirrors on me, are you? Because you don't have any real fire or real light? It's smoke and mirrors when they take you back in the Old Testament to try to prove to you about a New Testament practice. No one in the Old Testament knew anything about water baptism. John the Baptist came with that. John the Baptist instituted that. We don't learn about it from circumcision. We don't learn about it from Ezekiel 36, about I'll sprinkle clean water upon you. Ezekiel 36, the chapter from the first verse to the last verse, and every verse in between, is about the recovery of the Jews out of Babylon back to Jerusalem. Go read it. When they take you into shadows, you've got to ask why. Why don't they want to deal with the reality? It's because they're pulling out their smoke and mirrors. And they're going to beguile you out of your reward. And they're going to deceive you. And they're going to use philosophy and vain deceit to take you off of the simplicity of the gospel. They say, you Baptists are so simple, you look at a verse like John 3.23 and it says much water, and you just automatically think immersion. That's That's how they write and they reason. Like we're simpletons because we didn't happen to go to the same cemetery they went to get our doctorate degrees. We read the Bible. The house of Stephanus, I'll tell you something about the house of Stephanus. The whole household was addicted to the ministry of the saints. They were ready to be baptized. I told you last Sunday, and it's more than we could have asked for from our enemies. But do you know that infant communion is on the rise among the Presbyterians? The Christian Reformed denomination has already accepted it. Several Catholic organizations already accept it. Greek Orthodox, Eastern Catholics, they accept infant communion. But some Presbyterians are doing it as well, and we couldn't have asked for them to give us more. But listen, they're consistent at least. If sprinkling a baby guarantees them in the covenant, makes them a member of the church then why shouldn't they be allowed to partake in the Lord's Supper as well? Just give it to them in a bottle or a spoon. It's ridiculous. How do they discern the Lord's death till He comes? How do they examine themselves? They are partaking unworthily, and it's one heresy leading to another heresy until we stand on the outside and say, the emperor has no clothes on. 
What in the world are they giving communion to an infant for? R.C. Sproul. A baby feeder. Absolutely. James Jordan, Gary North, Rush Dooney, baby feeders, infant communion. I, I told you last Sunday, you can look it up, go, go Google it. You know, It's wonderful now on all these issues that deal with other people, if you're even interested. All you got to do is go punch in, Pado communion. Pado communion. How could a man be so blind as to think that communion is to be given to babies? There is no saving virtue in that bread and wine. It is a symbolic act by which we remember the Lord's death till He comes. That's what He told us. To remember His death till He comes. Oh, here, here, here's a hard one. Let's go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 13. Then were there brought unto Him little children, that He should put His hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. Matthew nineteen fourteen. But Jesus said, Suffer little children, and forbid them not to come unto me. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. Is there anything in those three verses about baptism? Is there anything in those three verses about infants? Did Jesus lay his hands on them and pray for them? Can, can we construe that as baptism? Not on the basis of John 4, 2, which says that Jesus didn't baptize anyone. Jesus may have prayed over these children. Jesus may have laid his hands on them. Jesus may have cured them from diseases. And he may have cast out devils. But he didn't baptize them. When he says, of such is the kingdom of heaven, does that mean that heaven is filled with a whole bunch of little babies that were baptized as infants and then died before they reached maturity? Or does that mean in order to get into the kingdom of heaven, you better humble yourself as a little child? That's what Matthew 18 teaches us. And when we turn back one page to look up what this passage is talking about, does it tell us where Jesus said, And whoso shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me? If there was baptism there, they were already believers. But there wasn't any baptism there. Because they just asked him to lay hands on them. And Jesus did lay hands on them. And Jesus never baptized a single person. Brethren, don't let anyone pull that one on you. That passage isn't talking about baptism. You know, some vain thinkers today and some old commentators of old said all that matters is the essence of baptism, which means you have water in a body. And as long as you get water applied, that's good enough. Do you think that David would have listened to an explanation about the essence of moving the ark? Do you think that Moses would have thought about the essence of the rock? Did Moses have a rock? Did Moses use his rod? Did Moses get a result? But that is not what, that was so displeasing to the Lord that God kept Moses out of the land of Canaan. Don't talk about the essence of baptism being water applied to a body. Let's talk about this it. That God commanded us. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 12 and 32. Where we began several hours ago this morning. Observe to do whatsoever I have commanded thee. Do not add to it or take away from it. But observe to do it. Is what we wanted to keep. We don't want to talk about the essence of things. Every pedo baptist What do they call baptism? A word that's not in the Bible. And a word that we reject as Baptists. They call it a sacrament. 
Who has the most sacraments? Rome has seven. Rome has seven. The Lutherans have three or two or three or two, depending on which Lutheran you read, because they considered, they considered final absolution to be a sacrament as well as baptism and the Lord's Supper. What's a sacrament? A sacrament is an outward thing you do in the worship of God that conveys and brings inward grace. It is the way of getting God's grace to a person. And they mean an infant. And they mean when you're partaking of the Lord's Supper, you are actually getting grace in that bread or that wine. A Catholic has seven. Let's see if I can remember them. They have baptism. They have confirmation. They have penance where you can go and pay for your sins. They have mass. They have orders to get ordained. They have holy matrimony. That's why I don't like the word. Holy matrimony is one of the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And they have last rites or extreme unction for the dead. They have seven. The reformers came out of Catholicism. They didn't want to get rid of all those. So they kept two or three. The Lutherans kept three. The Calvinists kept two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they always call them sacraments. They always call them sacraments. When anyone asks you, how many sacraments do you have in your church? How many do we have? Zero. We have no sacraments. There's nothing outwardly that we do that conveys inward grace. What's the word that we use? That we started out with this morning from 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 2. Ordinances. What's an ordinance? Something that God has ordained that we're supposed to do. There's nothing involved in the Word about it conveying grace. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15.29. We don't have sacraments. We have ordinances. They're things God has ordained for us to do, and we will do them. We don't believe we're saved by them. We believe that we show we're saved by doing them, and by doing them sincerely and zealously. 1 Corinthians 15.29 Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? This is the verse that the Mormons use to construct their doctrine of baptism for dead relatives. That you can go get baptized by proxy, meaning you take the name of another person and get baptized in an underground baptistry in one of their temples for dead relatives that never had a chance for a Mormon baptism. This is the verse they use. Well, you say it, it sounds pretty good. What does the verse mean? The best, the best place to start is what is the context of 1 Corinthians 15. From the first verse to the last verse, it's the resurrection of the body. It's bodily resurrection. Paul argues from the beginning of this chapter to the end of the chapter in various ways about the resurrection of the body, our bodies, Jesus Christ's body. And when he gets to verse 29, in verses 29 through 32, he uses two practical arguments. He's been using arguments like, there were 500 men that saw him alive. He had to have been raised from the dead. We've preached that he rose from the dead. And if you say that he didn't rise from the dead, then we're just a bunch of liars. If he didn't rise from the dead, then you're still in your sins. If he didn't rise from the dead, then we are of all men most miserable because we're living a life of self-denial in this world and there's no hope of a world to come. He's reasoning doctrinally through 1 Corinthians 15. He gets to verse 29. He has two practical arguments. If there is no resurrection of the dead, your ordinance of baptism is stupid. And second, why in the world do I endanger my life if there's no future life? That's verses 30 through 32. 
Okay, verse 29. Else what shall they do with your ba- if there's no resurrection of the dead? How do we know that's his point? Because that's the middle statement in verse 29. There's three parts to verse 29. And the middle one is, if the dead rise not at all. If there's no resurrection of dead bodies, then why in the world are people getting baptized for the dead? In what sense can we understand those words in the light of the rest of the New Testament? That we are getting baptized in a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. There's an elliptical understanding there to be made that baptism was going on for a picture of death and for a picture of resurrection. But if there is no resurrection, why in the world would they be getting baptized in a picture of death and resurrection? It would just be a picture of death. And why would you want to do that? Why do you want to symbolize that you're just going to get buried, die and get buried someday? We are the only ones that can understand this text. That baptism is a picture of burial and resurrection. And why would we have that ordinance if we didn't believe any longer in the resurrection? That's why in the middle of it it says, if the dead rise not at all. The key to verse 29 is if the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? Elliptically, you could, you could re- word it this way. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the resurrection of the dead? If the dead rise then at all, why are they then baptized for the resurrection of the dead? That is an ellipsis. Those words pulled out make the point stronger. Because then baptism just becomes a figure of death. Because if there's no baptism, then it's just a picture of death. And why are you even doing it? If you sprinkle, you don't know what to do with 1 Corinthians 15, 29. If you pour, you don't know what to do. But if you baptize by immersion, then you know that you're buried, buried with him into death, like as Christ was buried into death, and like as he rose up again, we're showing a picture of burial and resurrection. Baptists understand 1 Corinthians 15, 29. I've told you that the most popular commentary sold in the world is Matthew Henry's unabridged edition. And when you read 1 Corinthians 15, 29 on it, he takes an entire page for the verse. He gives you nine options as to what 1 Corinthians 15, 29 means. And not one of them is the truth. And when he gets to the end, he says, The only thing we can know for sure is that the Corinthians understood it. Now, come on, folk. And I'll print it. I'll email it to you if you don't believe me. He gives nine options. And those nine are pretty wild. But he won't give the Baptist one because the Baptist one would would weigh too much and would mean too much. He should repent and go get baptized by a Baptist preacher. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers don't like doing that. I tell you the truth. Nine explanations. Not one of them is scriptural or makes any sense. And he can't use the Baptist one. Love the fact that you're a Baptist. Amen. Do you know why we're Baptists? Now, this is a little bit off the subject, but I'm, I'm wrapping up right now. Do you know why we're Baptists? Because all of our opponents say that we descend from the apostles. And I could read quotes until, let's see, it's one o'clock. I could read quotes for a long time. Let me read just a couple. The great Methodist historian that wrote Ridpath's History of the World, his name was John Clark Ridpath. He said, I should not readily admit that there was a Baptist church as far back as 100 A.D., Although without a doubt there were Baptists then, as all Christians were then Baptist. Robert Barclay, the Quaker. There are also reasons for believing on the continent of Europe, 
small hidden Christian societies who have held many of the opinions of the Anabaptists have existed from the time of the apostles. Well then, Robert, why don't you want to join us? Alexander Campbell. From the apostolic age to the present time, the sentiments of Baptists have had a continued chain of advocates and public monuments of their existence in every century can be produced. Then why do you want to start a new church, Alexander? The, listen to this one. Where did Calvinists define themselves but in Holland? The five points of Calvin came out of Holland. They didn't come from John Calvin's pen. They came later. But the king of Holland appointed two professors in 1819, historians of the Dutch Reformed Church, to prepare a history of their church. Here is what they wrote. We have now seen that the Baptists, who were formerly called Anabaptists, and in later times Mennonites, were the original Waldenses, and who, long in the history of the church, received the honor of that origin. On this account, the Baptists may be considered as the only Christian community which has stood since the apostles, and as a Christian society has preserved pure the doctrine of the gospel through all ages. The perfectly correct external and internal economy of the Baptist denomination tends to confirm the truth disputed by the Romish church, that the Reformation brought about in the 16th century was in the highest degree necessary and at the same time goes to refute the erroneous notion of the Catholics that their communion is the most ancient. The Reformation wasn't necessary because there are a whole lot of Baptists already out there and the Catholics are not the most ancient because the Baptists are. What about believers' baptism? Philip Doddridge, we sing some of his songs. He was an English nonconformist. I think that illumination as well as regeneration, in the most important and scriptural sense of the words, was regularly to precede the administration of that ordinance. Thank you. Isaac Watts, another baby sprinkler, we sing the songs. Faith and repentance were the great things required of those that were admitted to baptism. This was the practice of John... This is the practice of the apostles in their ministry. There's hundreds of them. Quotes of Paedobaptists admitting that they know we've got the most apostolic origin to our baptism. You say, how could a man say that and not submit to it? Let me ask you a question. If you answer my question, I'll answer your question. I'm speaking on behalf of our Lord. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Is that, an, is that a sufficient answer as to why men can do this? John Calvin, in his Harmony of the Evangelists, because Christ requires teaching before baptizing and will have believers only admitted to baptism, baptism does not seem rightly administered except faith precede. Immersion. John Wesley, one of the principal founders of Methodism, in his commentary on Romans 6.4, we are buried with him, alluding to the ancient manner of baptizing by immersion. 
John Kelvin. Whether the person baptized is to be wholly immersed, and that whether once or thrice, or whether he is only to be sprinkled with water, is not of the least consequence. Churches should be at a liberty to adopt either, according to the diversity of climates. Although it is evident that the term baptize means to immerse, and that this was the form used by the primitive church. John Calvin on John 3.23, that was out of his institutes, chapter 15, or section 15. On John 3.23, about the much water. From these words, we may infer that John and Christ administered baptism by plunging, by plunging the whole body beneath the water. Amen and amen. One of, the, one of the greatest lawyers in the history of England, his name was Selden. The Harvard Law School still has a very exclusive society named after him. I don't have the quote here in my notes, but I'll just paraphrase it. It's very short. He says, it seems to me that in our England, only the parson practices baptism when he dips his fingers in the water to sprinkle the infant. <laughs> now, <laughs> that's how I love the man. I don't know much about him, but he said, it seems to me that in our England, it's only the parson who dips his fingers in the water that practices baptism. <laughs> Amen. He's putting something under the water and burying it in that water. There's so many more things that could be said. We have a wonderful doctrine. The Lord's been so gracious to us. We are not, we are not better than anyone who believes the opposite. By nature, we are the children of wrath, even as others, even as they, and they as we. We are no different, I have said from the first syllable of last Lord's Day, and I say it again now. We are bound... To give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. The only one that made the difference is the God of heaven. Amen. And he chose to be merciful upon us. But we are not going to apologize for that mercy. We are going to defend the truth that mercy gave us. And we're going to stand fast and hold the traditions of the apostles. They know we're holding the traditions. They're just ashamed and afraid to submit to the foolish ordinance of baptism of Baptists. We are not better. And anything I have said is not to be construed that way whatsoever. By the grace of God, we see the truth. But we are going to hold to the simplicity of the gospel. And we are going to follow the word of God. And we are going to be Baptists. We're thankful to be Baptists. We believe the Bible is a Baptist book. We believe Jesus was a Baptist. And we will follow him in life or in death. But most of all, as I have also said very clearly, the most important part of this doctrine is not being able to defend it. Or being able to refute Catholics or Presbyterians. It's whether we live a resurrected life day by day by showing the burial of our sins and our identification with Jesus Christ's death in order that we can identify with him by a resurrected life.
that lives in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. That's what baptism is for. That's what it declares when we first enter into it. And the apostle appealed to it by those who had been long baptized that it should affect how they live. And that when any of them would ever think, let us sin that grace may abound, he had an answer for them. Your baptism totally denies such a Christian experience. Your baptism, and you should reckon it, and you should know it, that you have declared yourself to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ the Lord. If then ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above.